If you brought a Bible, we're actually going to, we're going to go there. We're going to go to the book of Mark. And this will be, I believe, week five or six of our, our sermon series that we began uh, going through the book of Mark. And we've entitled our, our study through the gospel of Mark, Mightier Than I. Um, and if this is your first morning, I'll just quickly explain uh, why we've entitled that. It's because the, um, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, he was the one who was foretold of many, many centuries prior to Jesus that he would be the one to announce the Messiah. He would be the one to make a way and to cry out in the wilderness, the king is coming. And when he finally sees Jesus, he says, behold, the one who is mightier than I. And that's, that's how we're introduced to Jesus. That's how we're introduced to the God who became king in Christ. And from there, we, the, the story unfolds. Now, last week, um, it was a bit heavy. I don't know how you felt about it, but it was, we got into some pretty heavy uh, content, deep waters. And so I thought we'd lighten it up a little bit this week, if we can go to the next slide, and simply talk about delusional demonic destroyer and the unforgivable sin. So, just to keep it light. All right. Let's go to Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And we're going to read it's probably about a page or so, depending upon how your Bible is formatted. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Verse 13. And when he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. I love that one. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he, that is Jesus, called, to, called them to him and said to them in parables, 
How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an, inter- of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let's pause there. Verse 7 says, and a great crowd followed him. Have you ever been in a great crowd? What's the biggest crowd you've ever been in? Concert, lecture, 200, revival, okay, anyone top 200, I can easily top 200, no offense, (laughs) the what, the women's march, three million, you were there, that's, yeah, that's, that's a few people, yeah, not, not three million, yeah, no, not even close, okay, um, Biggest crowd I think that I ever have been in is, it was lo- the, the 100th year anniversary of Las Vegas. And they celebrated it on New Year's Eve of, I don't know when it was, I don't remember that bit, but it was the 100th year anniversary of this city. And I remember the media saying at the time it was the largest gathering in like the history of North America ever. Like it was just, and the streets were just flooded with people. And it kind of felt for a minute like I, someone could get crushed, like this could get out of control real quick. But that's what I imagine when this great crowd is introduced to us. There was a crowd before, chapters one and two, it talked about a bit of a crowd forming, but now it's a great crowd. It's almost like we're being introduced to another character in the, the story, the great crowd. And Jesus would go here and there and the great crowd would gather to the extent that he thought, I'm going to be crushed. We need to get a boat. I need to get on the water. When they go back to his house, his home, I guess, and it said the crowd was so great, he couldn't even eat, which I find kind of amusing. Like, what does that even mean? Like, why would Mark include that detail? They couldn't even sit down to have a meal. Mark, the writer, is inviting us in to the crowd. You guys remember those choose your own adventure stories back in the day? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, thank you. I was really into the choose your own adventure stories for a minute. Why do kids not do those anymore? Thank you. It's like that. We're being invited into the great crowd. And then we're being told about, we're being introduced to certain types of people in the crowd. It's a crowd of people who apparently have all heard something 
about this Jesus. The unclean people, those with diseases and, 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 and I don't know, the unclean people, wanted to get close to Jesus. And yet the unclean spirits would freak out whenever Jesus came near. Something was erupting in the crowd and the word had, has now officially gone out. The crowd, the masses are gathering. And then Jesus begins to pick individuals out of the crowd. It said that he went up on a mountain and he called 12 to himself uh, by name, by name, which is interesting. Um, he gives them nicknames nonetheless. It's a very personal thing. Now, to be sure, there's a lot of uh, significant symbolism happening in that moment. Jesus ascending the mountain and calling the 12 to himself. If, you're, if you went to Jewish Sunday school, you would immediately think Exodus 19. This is, this is the story of God's people being called out. And God says that I called my people to myself and they're brought to Mount Sinai where God manifests his presence and representatives of the 12 tribes are called to himself. This is a, quite an obvious way of the gospel writer Mark retelling the story as if to say, <laughs> we're doing this over. The story, where the story went terribly wrong in Exodus 19, you might remember that little, that wasn't, it wasn't so long ago that we were studying that event in the history of God's people. It ended up going very, very badly. But now Jesus is calling the 12 to himself again up on the mountain and he's calling them to be with him that he might send them, that he might give them authority to confront darkness. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but I think it's phenomenal the way God is so personal in his interaction with us. I don't know how you are. I don't want to make any assumptions, but a lot of us, I think, prefer to keep our religion, or excuse me, relationship with God um, on a slightly less personal level. Personal is complicated. Personal typically gets painful. Personal, yes, there you go. And Jesus has this way of uh, getting awkwardly personal. He calls individuals out of the great crowd to be with him and to participate in the work that he has begun. Right, so he picks some individuals out. But then immediately we're introduced to some other characters who are apparently a part of the crowd. We have his family who uh, it would seem think that he's gone insane which is hard to, I think, really reconcile in my mind because um, the other Gospels tell us the story of Jesus' birth and apparently his mother has a significant role in, in that process. Not just the fact that she gave labor, but she's, she's told by an angel, there's a visitation, and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is told this is the Messiah, this is the King, this is the One. And she stored all these things up in her heart. And now Jesus, X number of years later, is actually fulfilling that calling, that vision that, 
that Mary had received via the angel, and she's clearly struggling to make sense of it all. His family is convinced that he's delusional. I find it um, ironic that his family is the one who thinks he's gone insane. Um, I find personally that as we are considering who Jesus is, like in a very personal way, is it not true that often our families are the ones that can kind of influence us to think like, like if, you're, if you go too far with this Jesus thing, okay, you're in a cult and you're crazy. Or conversely, they're the ones who have gone a little bit too far and you look at them and you think about Jesus and you're like, no, 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 no. Like my family's crazy, I'm not, I'm not going that way. Are you guys with me? Isn't it ironic that Jesus' own family looked on and thought, my goodness, our boy has lost his mind. And so if you're in the crowd, you might be thinking to yourself, gosh, maybe he is crazy. How long have I been following this guy? Now, maybe I'm crazy. Have you ever thought that? Do we have a moment of like brutal honesty? Have you ever thought to yourself, I can remember vividly in my life as a Christian coming to a, uh, like a, a season, a time, a stage in my, my Christian life where I began to think, am I crazy? Like I'm really starting to believe that Jesus is the son of God. That he actually died on a cross for my sins. And he is changing me. And I remember, have you ever had that thought? Some of you are like, what? No, never. Yeah, you have. If you're honest with yourself. I don't, maybe you haven't. Okay, I have. And then you get to another, if you keep going, if you keep choosing to follow Jesus, then after a while, the empirical data of transformation begins to stack up so high, I would argue that it would be crazy to think that Jesus wasn't actually doing this. I mean, after a while, you begin to think like either this is the, the grandest conspiracy theory in the history of the universe, or Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, and he is changing my life. But if you're in the crowd and you're looking on, you might possibly side with the family. You might wonder yourself, is he crazy? Am I crazy? Um, of course, the scribes, the religious experts, we've met them before, um, they're not, they don't seem to be too bothered about the whole delusional thing. Like, they, they got him pinned. They're like, no, we know exactly what's going on. This dude's not crazy. This guy is demonic. He's demon-possessed. He's evil. He's a liar. And he's actually being influenced by some sort of spiritual force of wickedness. This Jesus, he's possessed by Beelzebul. You guys heard this one, Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, depending upon the manuscript you might be referencing. So Beelzebub, or Beelzebul, is a, it's a spinoff of a Canaanite god that the Bible frequently refers to as Baal, or B-A-A-L, Baal. 
Um, also known in ancient demonology as the winged prince of demons. Apparently, he flew. It's uh, what Paul refers to in Ephesians 2.2 as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Um, Beelzebub is also known as Lord of the Flyers, or simply Lord of the Flies. Seriously, that's where that comes from. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, the prince of the power of the air, the winged prince of demons, this ancient God of the Canaanites. The scribes seem to think that there's something definitely going on. There's power at work. People are getting healed. It's indisputable. Demons are being cast out. People are being set free. No denying it. They've seen it now, up close. The only thing that they can say to make sense of it is he must be siding with Satan himself. What would, what would the other option be? Who, who else could Jesus possibly be? If not insane, if not demonized, maybe a great moral teacher. If you've read any C.S. Lewis, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, There's a brilliant quote by C.S. Lewis. He actually, I'm convinced that he's drawing his thought process from this passage right here. Let's go to the next slide, please. We've got to read this quote. You've probably heard it before. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his merely being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. His family, the scribes, the onlookers knew for sure that this was not merely another spiritual guru that they were dealing with. This is not just Jesus, the great rabbi, the moral teacher coming with the new teachings. If there was anything new at all about his teachings, really, at least up until this point, is that he was teaching as if the words were his own. They were in wonder, they, they were in awe at the authority with which he taught, because he wasn't waxing theory. He was saying, these are my words. I am the king who's come to declare my authority, to inaugurate my kingdom beyond mere word, but in a demonstration of power. So, how did Jesus respond? Can we go to the next slide? I love this. I love the old school pictures. They accuse him of siding with Satan. His simple response is, guys, think about what you're saying. If I was siding with Satan, that's a zero-sum game. Okay, that's Satan versus Satan. Like, that's, if anything, that's a win for you guys. That's not what's happening here at all. 
He says in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've come to plunder the hell out of Satan's house, or rather, I've come to take back what the enemy has stolen. I've come to claim what and who is rightfully mine. I've come to overthrow the strong man. He goes on to say that there is no sin on earth too great for me to deal with, too great for me to forgive, and no sinner too far gone for me to restore. There is no sin or quote-unquote blasphemy beyond the grace of God, beyond the king's power to forgive. This is what uh, John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 talking about when he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the enemy. Guys, this is Jesus, the destroyer. You know what this is? You know what I, you know what I think about when I, when I imagine this, this confrontation going on? You guys ever watch those Instacarma videos, Instacarma videos on YouTube? No? Seriously? You guys, you guys know about YouTube? <laughs> So if you go on the YouTube, <laughs> the instant karma videos, it's just like, it's, it's basically, it's the same scenario over and over and over of some bully picking on someone on the street, hyping it up, big man, all of a sudden out of the crowd comes the, the unsuspecting, no hype, no hustle, just the guy who walks up to the bully, uppercut KO, bully falls. It's beautiful. You're like, yes, yes, yes. This is that. This is that. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, you think I'm possessed by a demon? You think I'm in cahoots with the enemy? I've come here to throw down. I've come here to overcome the works of the enemy, to destroy the Satan, to tear down his kingdom brick by brick and establish a new kingdom, one that's based on my victory over sin and death because there is no sin too great for me to destroy. That's, yeah, that's, that gets me fired up. This is Jesus's first truly statement. Something to just highlight. And um, he's 14 times throughout the book of Mark, he makes this truly I say. It's, it's meant to be like a little like post-it note. Truly I say. Actually, Jesus says it 13 times. And the very last person to say it, to make a truly statement at the very end, Mark 14, it's a Gentile who looks upon the crucified Christ and he says truly, but we'll get there. This is Jesus' first truly statement. He says, truly, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And the only sin that Jesus won't or can't forgive is the sin you refuse to surrender to him. That is the sin of suppressing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the sin of saying no to God's grace when the Spirit is leading or trying to lead one to repentance. 
There is no other sin that is too great or too far beyond the arm of the Lord. His grace is always more than enough. So imagine you're in the crowd and you're looking on. You've heard the rumors. Every one of us has a friend, at least, maybe a friend of a friend, who's been healed or touched or changed or saved by Jesus. Some dispute it. Some are like, that's, that's, just, that's just crazy. I can't quite explain it. To be honest, I've not actually done the research, but I'm convinced it's just crazy town. Others are like, eh, I, no, it's religion, and we all know religion's bad. Because, you know, you know. But then there's some who Jesus calls. And he says, you, I want you, I want you to come. I want you to be with me. I want you to experience who I really am. Will you come? Will you respond? Maybe you think, I don't know. I'm unclean. I don't know if I'm worthy. I'll go to church. Oh, I don't know. Do some religious stuff. Um, maybe I'll work on myself a bit. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll confess, because that's kind of cathartic. But I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, Jesus. Can you, can you handle my sin? Can you deal with what has been done to me? Because, you know, there's two sides to the sin coin. There's the sin that I've committed. Well, I've got my fair share. But then there's the sin that I've been subjected to. Sin I never asked for. Abuse, uh, betrayal, <sighs> rejection. That's mm, the painful stuff. Jesus calls us to himself so that he can deal with our sin, so that he can make us clean and involve us in his great mission so that we might be called sons and daughters not servants, not slaves that are just trying to work our way back into the house, but adopted sons and daughters who have been cleaned, who have been redeemed, who have been forgiven. Because, you know, forgiveness in the kingdom of God is not just a matter of sentiment. It's not, does, just, does Jesus think good thoughts about me? This is not, this is not Jesus the boo-boo kisser. This is Jesus the mighty one. This is King Jesus who came to overcome sin and death, who by the authority that only the king has pronounces forgiveness over the most unforgivable. No matter what you've done or when you did it, what's been done to you, no matter how defiled you feel inside, the king can look at your sin and say, you, you 
You are clean. You are loved. You are my child. Now, if you'll trust me, if you'll embrace me, if you'll allow me to deal with the bully of sin in your life, you can experience a love that you have never, ever experienced before. The kind of love that changes you from the inside out, that will convince you once and for all that there is a God in heaven and he is real and he is close and he wants you to know him as father. That is what it is to be like Christ. I've often been asked, how would you define a Christian? Not really a definition in the Bible. You know how I would define a Christian? It's someone who relates to God as father, like Jesus, because, what of Jesus, because of what, because what Jesus has done for you. You relate to God as your father. The implications are eternal. That'll, that'll change everything. It'll change the way you see yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. It'll change the way you view others. It will certainly change the way you act. How you guys doing? It's okay? So the unforgivable sin business. Um, there is no unforgivable sin. There's nothing I can do or say or think or feel that's greater than God's grace. The only quote-unquote unforgivable sin is to simply say no to God's grace. To say no, Holy Spirit, no, I got this. And it's probably important to note that I don't know any, anyone who actually has some softness of heart ever like out loud says, no, God, I blaspheme you. Like whoever says that, what does that even mean? Um, it certainly doesn't mean you, you, know, you use God's name as a bad word. That would be a sin for sure, but that's not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's, I would say for most of us, for like your average sinner kind of, kind of person, what it really is is to say, no, I know I need to be healed. I know that I need to be forgiven. I know that on the inside I feel broken, slightly unwhole. I know that I need to be healed. I feel unclean, but I got this. I, I, I can fix it. I, I can make it right. I can, I'll work harder. I'll do better. I'll, I'll do all of the right things. I promise I'll get it right this time is to say no to the grace of God. It's to say that, no, I don't actually need a savior. I'll take a moral teacher. I'll take a good buddy. I'll take a kiss on the boo-boo, but I got this. I'll sort myself out. And that is to resist the spirit who leads us to repentance to say, I cannot do this on my own. I can't do open heart surgery on myself. I need to be saved. I need to know that my God is good and faithful and able to lift me up out of the muck of my sin, the mire of my life, and make me whole again. And the only way, the only way we could commit an unforgivable sin, quote unquote, 
is to simply say no to the grace of God. But why would we do that? Why would anyone do that? But we all do it. It's, it's what eventually, hopefully, leads someone to truly repenting for the first time in their life. Because eventually you get exhausted. You get exhausted trying to recreate yourself over and over and over, trying to piece together some sense of identity. Eventually you just, you collapse under the weight of it all. And hopefully say, God, help me. Why don't you make me whole? Let's, um, let's finish the, the passage. There's a conclusion here. Mark 3, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Presumably, they're still concerned that he's lost his mind. Verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about, those, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And that's where the story ends. Whoever does the will of God. Isn't it interesting that Mark would end there? Whoever does the will of God, he's in my family. She's in my family. They belong to my family. They are the forgiven ones. Jesus calls for more than a passive response. Those who are truly in Jesus' family are active participants in the new life that he's come to offer. Here, the familial expectation to do the will of God presupposes faith. It presupposes a trust in Jesus. Thus, Mark ends this part of his gospel and sets us up for the next section, by the way, by emphasizing a clear call to action. Faith in action, i.e. biblical faith, is always synonymous with what we call obedience. Because those who have been forgiven much are those who love much. Those who love even their enemies like God has loved us. Mark's all about action. He said, you want to know that you have been forgiven? Jesus says, you want to understand who's in my family? It's those who are actually following me, obeying me. It's those who are exhibiting the fruit of a life that has been transformed by the forgiveness offered to us in Christ. It's a call to obedience. It's strange that he doesn't say those who believe. He could have, and that would have been just as right and correct, but he puts a little twist on the end there. Jesus said, I'm not just calling you to think differently. That, that's, that's the starting point. That's what happens when we repent. He takes us one step further 
And he says, this is what it's actually going to look like. It's when you begin to live in response. When you begin to actually apply what you've experienced on the inside. Because if you have been forgiven, you will live differently. If you have actually encountered the life-changing grace of God, if this is for real, if you've decided to simply step, to step out of the crowd, if you've decided, I've pondered long enough, I've looked on, I've debated with myself, I've gone back and forth, time for thinking is over, it's time that I begin to actually live my life as if Jesus were the king, as if he is the mightier one. And we begin to follow him, we begin to obey him, we begin to, well, as Jesus said, those who love me will do what I command. And that's where we end. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.